I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. For the first time since the coronavirus crisis began, a little light relief. This episode is mostly about something else. <laughs> the wonder of science, especially material science, what it is and why it's a crucial part of all that is in us and around us. How Science Shapes Us, Anissa Ramirez. STEM education right now is in the business of making people who can code. And I think we need to use those skills from STEM as a way to give them critical thinking and the, the ability to solve problems so that they can apply to anything that they do. And, and if we use STEM as a gymnasium rather than as the outcome, I think we serve society better. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? For many years at school, I was a mediocre student. Got a lot of C's, even D's. But when I was a teenager, at last, I had a very good economics and history teacher. And he sparked my curiosity in both subjects. And I've been interested in them ever since. My grades also improved. So often, having a really good teacher can make a difference, especially with subjects that can be challenging for some kids. Having someone who knows how to communicate about a dense, complex topic is important even long after we're out of school. This episode is about material science, which is something I've never had much interest in. Perhaps I needed a good teacher. Our guest today is Anissa Ramirez, one of today's most engaging science communicators. This is Anissa's second time on How Do We Fix It? And we're very excited to talk to her about her new book, The Alchemy of Us, How Humans and Matter Transformed One Another. Anissa joins us from New Haven, Connecticut, which is just up the road from my remote studio here on the Connecticut coast. Uh, welcome back to How Do We Fix It? Oh, it's so great to be here. I'm struck by your fascination, your love for this subject. How did that come to you? Were you always interested in science? Oh, yeah. I was I was one of those probably annoying little kids that wanted to be a scientist and say, hey, I want to be a scientist. And it just, you know, you would push me away. But I was always curious. I was taking things apart. I remember when my dad would come home, he worked from IBM and I was so glad to see him, but I was really glad to see his toolbox because he repaired computers and I would use those tools and figure out what they did and take things apart. So I was always a very, very curious child and uh, knew I wanted to be a scientist. And it wasn't until undergraduate years when I was at uh, Brown 
where I discovered material science. And that made sense to me because it was a way that made, it was a great framework to understand how the world worked. So let's start with the basics. Uh, Anissa, what is materials science? It's more than just chemistry, right? I liken material science to my home state of New Jersey because both New Jersey and, and material science get very little respect, and it's because they're overshadowed by their neighbors. Uh, for New Jersey, that's Philadelphia and New York, and for material science, it's chemistry and physics. And material science just lies at where chemistry and physics overlaps. It's interested in how bonds happen between atoms, so that's the chemistry part. And then it connects that to how a material will behave, and so that's the physics part. So that's what material science is. But if I'm telling someone briefly what I am a, as a material scientist, I tell them I'm an atom whisperer. <laughs> and, and, what is, and what is that? Well, it means that I'm paying attention to atoms. I'm trying to learn a little bit about how they live so that I can get them to do new things so I can make new materials. In the book, you explain how humans learn to manipulate some common materials like steel and glass and silicon and how those changes spurred inventions that then transformed our civilization. In working on this, you got really fascinated by glass blowing. Yeah, well, there was one day that I went to glass blowing class and an accident happened. I wasn't paying attention. Short answer is nobody got hurt. But uh, afterwards, I started thinking about uh, what had happened. I realized that the glass was actually shaping me. And, you know, perhaps this is a little existential, but I started thinking, I wonder how glass and rather how materials and humans have been dancing with each other, how they've been transforming one another. And that became the uh, guiding theme of the book, The Alchemy of Us. That guiding theme being that it's this isn't just about a bunch of inventions, but also about how the science changed us in ways we didn't expect, right? Absolutely. Usually when you read or you see a book about technology, you'll see the origin story, you'll see maybe a couple of conflicts, and then the invention was created. And that's kind of the end of the book. But that for me is actually where the story gets started. And then I show you surprises that happened. When we created the telegraph, the intention was to send information rapidly from one part of the country to another. But what we found is because the telegraph had a shortcoming, meaning that it couldn't send a lot of messages at the time. Telegraph officers would tell customers, you're welcome to use this, but you have to be brief. And as a result of that, uh, newspapers started to adopt telegraphs, and this style of writing with short declarative sentences became embraced. In fact, there was one reporter who really loved this style and embraced this style as his own. His name was Ernest Hemingway. So you can see that the telegraph's design was to allow messages to move rapidly. But in the process, it also became one of the agents for shaping American English. You know, it's funny. Richard does always after me to, to talk more like a telegraph message and get to the point a little quicker. Um, yes, absolutely. <laughs> I want to I want to explore these ideas with long questions. One thing in your story about glass that I thought was so intriguing was how it ultimately changed the course of medicine. And it all started with a sponge cake? <laughs> right, right. There was a, a woman living in upstate New York named Bessie Littleton, and uh, she loved to cook. And one day, her very expensive casserole dish broke. And when her husband came home, he worked at Corning. His name was uh, JT. 
she's like, JT, this thing is very expensive. And you're talking about all these fancy glasses you're making at work. Well, look, my dish here broke. Why don't you make something that doesn't break? And so JT brought home one of the new forms of glass that we're working on. And she baked a small cake in it. He brought it to work. People were excited. They're like, oh, this cake is very good. He's like, oh, by the way, this was made by glass. No one thought it was a good idea to put glass in an oven. But with this special type of glass, this super strong glass called borosilicate glass, it was able to withstand the heat from the oven and also cook cakes in a new way. Now, they were also using this glass for medicines and for thermometers. So this glass is what we know today as Pyrex. But this glass is also important today. Now we're finding for the distribution of vaccines and medicines and all kinds of medical technology. And as we gear up, we hope to distribute billions of doses of vaccines, maybe by the end of this year or early next year. They're worried that there won't be enough of this borosilicate glass. What's going on with that? Well, you know, we've been here before when uh, Bessie Littleton and JT Littleton were figuring out Pyrex glass. Uh, America was about to enter World War I. And actually, Corning was asked by the government to start working on borosilicate glass because there was a monopoly. Germany had the monopoly on this glass. Now, we're in a similar place right now where we're running out of this glass because, well, we didn't predict a pandemic. And it's hard to produce this glass because the source of the glass is rare. And so we need this glass to hold vials and thermometers and for beakers. So we're kind of at a pickle right now. Your book is full of very human stories. When we think of inventions, they are often portrayed as the work of a genius. But that's often not the story at all, as, as you portray it. Your book, in fact, opens with the story of an English woman named Ruth Belleville. Who was she? She had this unusual business. She was in the business of selling time. Uh, she lived in the late 19th century. She lived in a city called Maidenhead, which is about 30 miles outside of London. She would make her way over to London and then over to Greenwich and then walk up the very steep hill to the Royal Observatory. And that's where the precise time was. Now, the whole time she was carrying with her a pocket watch, which she had nicknamed Arnold. They would compare Arnold to their scientific clock, give her a certificate, uh, noting the difference between the time. Then she would make her way down the hill over to London and then show her watch to different businesses that needed to know the precise time. So as you can imagine, train stations, banks, newspapers, even bars, and actually there were a few rich people who liked to have uh, the precise time. And Ruth Belville, for this very unusual business, was called the Greenwich Time Lady. So at that time, was the Royal Observatory in Greenwich the only source of absolutely accurate time? Absolutely. Um, so everyone kind of knew generally what the time was. Actually, sundials were still around. So you can get a sense of of a range of time, like it's between one and two. But if you wanted to the precise time, you had to go to the Royal Observatory because they actually did precise calculations to determine what the exact time is. And all these businesses needed to know the time, but they didn't have the luxury to leave their home and go three miles or a couple of miles to the Royal Observatory. And by the way, that's a very steep hill to go up that hill to get the time. So Ruth's job was to get the time, and then she was the time distribution service and went to these different businesses giving them the time. How did more accurate clocks help shape who we are? How did they change our culture? Well, this, is, this was a hard question to answer. But then I found that before the Industrial Revolution, we actually used to sleep differently. 
Um, we would turn in around nine o'clock or so, sleep for about three and a half hours. Then we'd wake up for about an hour or so and do things around the house, maybe read, sew, go see our neighbors because they were up to, and then go back to sleep for another three and a half hours. Uh, these two segments of sleep were called first and second sleep, and everyone slept this way. Now, this changed by two factors. First, there was the clock. We had to get up early to go to the factory. So one of those segments, one of those doses of sleep was truncated. And then the second was we started living with artificial lights and that pushed back the day. You also write about how the invention of modern illumination changed. It even changed our biology to some degree. How did that happen? Well, we have two modes. We have a daytime mode and we have a nighttime mode. In the daytime mode, we have more growth hormone going through our bodies, a higher temperature, high metabolism. Nighttime mode, all those different factors reduce. How our bodies know what mode to be in is because of the lights. It's particularly blue light that tells our body to be in daytime mode. Now, it ends up that because we live under artificial lights all the time, which are mostly blue, giving off blue light, we're in growth mode all the time until we fall asleep. And what that means is that our bodies are swimming in growth hormones, and there's going to be some repercussions because of that. So the lights, this thing that we thought was innocuous, is actually changing our body's biology. For many of us during this current lockdown, our, our sense of time, I think, has been altered. Absolutely. So there's a decoupling of time. We used to follow more of a nature's clock, like okay, I'm hungry now, so it must be lunchtime. Instead of, oh, it's noon, I must go eat. We used to follow our own body's clock, but now, now we adhere to the clock, what our watches detect. It ends up that our brain measures time by our experiences. The way that our bodies measure time and our clocks measure time is very different. How does that apply to the current moment that many of us find ourselves in with, with a lot more time and fewer places to rush around to? That's right. Well, if we're eating the same foods, wearing the same clothes, all the days kind of slip into one big fat day. And so we lose a sense of time. Uh, but by having routines, knowing that we were going to work, we were going to go to the gym at a certain time and we were going to meet friends, that gives us a way to mark off time. So we've lost our sense of time because it all seems like it's this day because it's the same day. We're in the same location. We're not doing things that are very different from the day before. And so that's making it feel like time is moving very slowly. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. And I'm Richard Davies, and we're speaking with scientist Anissa Ramirez about her new book, The Alchemy of Us. More in a moment. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. 
That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In the second half of this episode, we're going to talk a lot about STEM education. STEM is science, technology, engineering, and math. Or as our English friends and family say, maths. Many scientific inventions are advances in the strictest sense, but sometimes they have unintended consequences. And one of those that you write about in your book is the development of the Polaroid instant camera. Tell us about how that wound up playing a surprising role in global events. Well, the Polaroid story was for me was very, very heartbreaking because when I was a kid, uh, one of my favorite things to do was go visit my grandparents. And my grandfather was sort of a gadget geek and he had an instant uh, camera made by Polaroid. And many of my childhood memories have been captured in that iconic white frame. What I found out while I was writing the book, The Alchemy of Us, is that 8,000 miles away, there were people standing in front of a Polaroid camera and they weren't too happy about it. It ends up that uh, Caroline Hunter was a chemist who was working at Polaroid, and she had discovered that her company was selling their technology to the South African government. The South African government at the time was under an apartheid uh, reign, and it required that all Black citizens carry with them a passbook, a passbook uh, monitored and controlled where they could go. At the heart of the passbook was a picture made with Polaroid film. But ultimately, Carolyn Hunter and one of her co-workers were able to stage a pretty effective protest and pressure their company and kind of expose what was happening in a way that ultimately changed the company's role in South Africa, didn't it? Absolutely. They used what is today the handbook for activism. Polaroid was the most beloved company, it was the apple of its time. So it wanted to make sure that its image looked great in the public. And so what Caroline Hunter, Ken Williams, and others did is they put themselves on the news to let people know about the nefarious things were, that were going on with their products. And so, and they also tapped into a network of activists uh, that were in the Boston area to spread the word. And then they tapped into student groups. And student groups were tied with universities. And universities have money. And money is, you know, they buy stocks for things like Polaroid. So it had this ripple effect. So it was two people that gave rise to this dismantling of this uh, endeavor. But what it speaks to is that a few people uh, can make huge change. That plays to a point that is raised a number of times by you, is, which is that many scientific inventions, while they may be advances in the strictest sense, they can have unintended consequences. Well, we shape technologies and technologies shape us. But at the center of this dance is that we must always keep technology uh, under our microscope to monitor and to make sure that it's going in the right course. You also note how many breakthrough inventions like the telegraph and Morse code, they didn't come from mainstream scientists. Where did Samuel Morse find the, the drive to pursue his big idea? He had the biggest commission of his life in Washington, D.C., and his family was located in New Haven, Connecticut. And so he's writing his family about all the parties he's going to, all the famous people he's going to. And he's telling his wife, the last thing he signs off on the letter is, I long to hear from you. About a couple of days later, he gets a letter from his father. 
Now, he knows that no one at home got his message because it takes several days to get there and it takes a couple of days for the message to get back to him. He finds out that actually his wife had died. The day that he was writing a letter to her, she had already gone. And so you can see he was well primed to be the person to want to create a way to communicate instantly. If not every inventor comes from a traditional science background, how can we make sure our society is tapping the widest array of people and ideas? Well, first, we need to dismantle that myth of uh, who does science. When they give the Nobel Prize out every year, it's usually three guys. And uh, there are armies of people that made that happen. So that, that award is wonderful, but it's also kind of perpetuating that myth. We should also be celebrating all those people who helped to make that possible. Even in my book, uh, there's a lot of people that I tell you that they had assistants or they had their wives working with them. In one case, William Wallace, who made an early lamp, his daughter was significant to him because she was very smart. And actually, he used her to bounce off ideas about electrical engineering. So one of the things we need to do is just dismantle that myth. That begs the question, do you think we need to rethink our whole approach to science and tech education so that more people can be interested in science than is the case now? Absolutely. I was trying to change that narrative of who does science and why we need to know science. Uh, STEM education right now is in the business of making people who can code. And I think we should be in the business of making good people. We need to use those skills from STEM as a way to give them critical thinking and the ability to solve problems so that they can apply to anything that they do. And, and if we use STEM as a gymnasium rather than as the outcome, I think we serve society better. You think the coronavirus pandemic we're in the midst of will be something like the Sputnik moment in the, in the 50s when after the Soviet Union launched the first man-made satellite, there was a huge almost a paranoia in the U.S., but it led to a revival in science and technology. I do think that there are lessons in the pandemic, and I do hope that we heed them. We will see things like the impact of humans on the climate. We know we've seen rivers that seem absolutely clean and skies that are bluer as a result of us not being on the roads. Um, this is pointing to the fact that we have an impact on the planet. So I hope that people can see that clearly. Uh, people were reluctant to consider things like telecommuting, which has been impacting the environment. Maybe there won't be a barrier to that anymore. We've done a couple of podcasts on this issue of STEM versus more of a liberal arts education. I'm a big advocate for seeing those things go together. What's your take? My take is that we need both. And I think that one of those fields needs to stop and and extend their hand out to the other field. If you go over to STEM and you mention history, they're, they're not interested because they like to do things a certain way. And if you go over to history and say, hey, we need to talk more about science, they're not interested because, well, they don't want to seem secondary to STEM. STEM has kind of got its moment right now. I try and highlight both as equally as possible so that we can see how we need each other. Science happens, but it happens in a context. And if we keep isolating science, people will look at things and, and not consider that there's a response to whatever they work on. And history without any science is, is, is not as rich as it could be. Thank you, Anissa Ramirez. Thank you so much. Okay, fantastic. Listen, great to have you back on the show. And um, thank you write, for the opportunity. have to write some more books so we can do it again. And coming up next, our conversation and then 
a recommendation. Jim, I was really struck by a comment that Anissa made during the interview that a few people can make great change. And that reminded me of an episode that we did just a few weeks ago with Catherine Sanderson, the author of the book, Why We Act, Turning Bystanders into Moral Rebels. She made the exact same point that the actions of a few moral people or, or a few good people can change society. It's not always people by themselves. It's often people in small groups. And I loved her emphasis on how we often hear these kind of great man stories of inventors like Edison or others. And what we don't hear as much is the teams of people that they inspired and they led, but they didn't come up with these breakthroughs by going down the same paths everyone else took. They didn't come up with these breakthroughs by sticking to a certain consensus in their field. They often, they were rebels in a sense. They were pushing the boundaries and we still need that today. And I think if there's anything that we could really encourage kids to do and young people as they kind of explore the world through science and, and STEM and all the rest is to think about, they're not just learning a body of knowledge, but learn that they can do experiments, that they can build things, that they can try things that are different, and that you can be just as creative in science as you might be in poetry or music or any other field. Jim, I really liked your point when you said that um, a good liberal arts education is is key to some of this as well, this idea that that one field of study should spark interest in the other. And I was thinking as well, this applies to business education. Um, so often we uh, talk about business and, and economics in the same dry terms as Anissa was criticizing science educators for doing about her field. One of my favorite episodes from a couple of years back was we talked to Scott Hartley, who wrote this book, The Fuzzy and the Techie, Why the Liberal Arts Will Rule the Digital World. And he made the point that an awful lot of people in leadership positions at some of our most admired tech companies, they're not coders. A lot of them were philosophy majors in college. And, you know, you have to be able to see this work in some kind of context. Maybe it's a moral context or historical context. You also need to be able to communicate it to people, inspire people. So, Jim, thanks for uh, bringing my attention to The Alchemy of Us. It's, it's a book I never would have read uh, without, uh, without a little nudge from you. And that brings us to our recommendation. And I am going to take what might be a, the easy road, and I'm going to recommend the book, The Alchemy of Us, that we're covering today. Here's one that's really just an enjoyable read. And, and Richard, I'm so happy to see that you're having so much fun reading about it. These are the kinds of topics that I've spent my whole life being interested in. So it's nice to have you in the club. <laughs> it's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our producer in the club is Miranda Schaefer. And we're a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits. Check out what we can do for you if you're interested in making a podcast at DaviesContent.com. And as always, thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. 
Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.